Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rob's Observations. I am Rob Liefeld, happy to hang out with you, talk comics with you. You're talking comics with me, comics and movies and, and television and cartoons and all of the different ways that my passion, my obsession, your obsession, comic books, our shared obsession has just blown up global, worldwide, the toy shelves, the, 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 the Target, the Walmart, the Best Buy, the the GameStop. I mean, it just seems like the entire world is comic books right now. And uh, I pulled my first comic book off the Spinner Rack in 1975. Uh, and I've been taking you down this journey now for many, many, many months, many episodes. We're going to stay the course. We are still uh, in the 90s, right, right here in 1990. We're going to do a couple things, uh, maybe change it up a little from, from, from how we've done things in the past. But but uh, we're going to definitely stay with the 1990s. And so many of you have said, hey, Rob, when are you going to cover what happened to DC in the 90s? Well, DC Comics gets really interesting in 1992. In 1990, 1991, we're going we're to talk about it tonight, but it's it's not a big shift in movement for them. They become a very reactionary entity, a very, very reactionary company that, you know, it's, it's like cold water splashed in their face. They got electrocuted. They got you know, shocked by Image Comics, which suddenly their kind of relaxed position against Marvel, kind of just just always content to kind of run alongside them or run or happy to run behind them, uh, is threatened when Image becomes the number two comic book company in August of 1992. This happened. We did it with seven comics. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to cover that when we when we get to 1992 because it is really the aftermath is where you get the death of Superman, breaking Batman's back, um, and and they start killing their characters with with huge acclaim and fanfare and sales, and it's exciting. It's an exciting time for them. DC Comics is uh, has an exciting time from that point on, but they're a little slow uh, getting around to it. 1989 is the is the the Batman tie-in comics, the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Jack Nicholson movie. We've covered that. All the multi multi-covered variants that really kicked off this age we're in. Do not think Marvel kicked off that age. That is DC 100%. Marvel started the multi, you know, multi-part crossover. They they started the miniseries with Contest of Champions, Secret Wars, all of this stuff. Then they really started doing crossover after crossover, X-Men crossover, Spider-Man crossovers, multi-part stories, bi-weekly comics. We've covered it. Go back, listen to those episodes. We go in depth. But DC was just content to just kind of keep feeling feeling out the market, kind of playing to the base. I was a huge DC fan. What you haven't picked up from me on this podcast is uh, what a huge DC Comics fan I was. Uh, the Titans and the Legion, George Perez and, and, and Marv Wolfman's Titans run is is uh, up there with me uh, at, at, alongside the X-Men. It, it's not, to me, as good as that stuff. It doesn't have the same uh, staying power, but in the moment it was fantastic. I actually favor the Legion of Superheroes during like the late 70s, all through the mid 90s, all the way up to about 1988, where Keith Giffen was really the spiritual kind of guy guiding that. I mean, he was writing it, he was plotting it, he was laying it out, or he was drawing it completely. And uh, it really is maybe my favorite comic Mar DC published during that time. But I, I just don't know if the appetite for an entire Legion of Superheroes show is there. So... You know, um, but DC did a lot of great stuff. I have we've definitely hit on their monumental, you know, projects like like Dark Knight and Watchmen were just so massive. They 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 they, they changed comics. 
specialized specialty uh, projects with two, three, uh, four, if you count Klaus Janssen, right? I mean, Lynn Varley's in there too with her amazing, amazing painted um, colors. The, 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 those Watchmen and Dark Knight really changed so much. It, it really, so, so 12 Watchmen, 4 Dark Knight, you know, it's 16 comics that, that changed the world, really. Um, but again, 89 to 92 is a quiet period for them. We're going to cover it. We're going to get into it tonight. But to start off, uh, t- today's uh, podcast, today today's show, I, I want to, again, there are sometimes I get out of this show and I go, man, are you really uh, believing you, Rob Liefeld, myself? Am I buying what I'm selling here when I say that my youth is what's currently on on, on screen? And is and is up, you know, in in, in the movie theaters, and, and I'm like, well, yeah, okay, Eternals, Eternals is on deck, and Eternals was born in 1976. Jack Kirby wrote it, and he and he and he illustrated it, and it's brilliant, and those characters are are are, are major, they're seminal, they're they're underutilized really by Marvel. I, I know they're putting out a new a new series because, in case you don't, I mean, you you haven't gotten the program yet, you know, uh. Kevin Feige's going to spend $200 million on a, a, an Eternals movie adapting Jack Kirby's work. And then Marvel Publishing goes, oh, we need to come alongside this and have a book that, that runs alongside it. You haven't gotten an Eternals book in forever, but now you're getting one. It's coming out at S65 covers or something like that um, to launch you know, by the end of this year. And that is because they did make a $200 million. Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, Richard Madden, everybody and their mother seems to be in Eternals. I, I really hope it's great. I hope it's great, and I hope it lives up to the amazing work of Jack Kirby, who, honestly, I follow so many Jack Kirby accounts. There is no doubt in my mind, especially in the last few weeks, embracing Jack's Black Panther, Jack's Cap, Jack's Eternals, Jack's Commandy, Jack's Forever People, Jack's uh, New Gods. Jack Kirby is the greatest comic book artist that ever lived, period, end of story, full stop. You can fight me about it. Um... Do I love John Byrne's art maybe more than anybody has any right to? I do. Uh, do. Do I think Neil Adams is the best illustrator that ever took a pen to a piece of paper? I do. Uh, but Jack Kirby is the best comic book artist, pound for pound, page for page, panel for panel, I've ever seen in my life. And the Eternals, man, I hope it lives up. I hope those designs, because part of what is unique about Jack is the way he creates characters, headdresses, um, the, 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 the way that he puts symbols and, and design work on, on the different costumes. And it's just, it's, it really is, he's, he's the most impactful costume designer of, of, of our entire lifetime, my entire lifetime, maybe in the history of comics. I, I really believe if you were to go back and you were to look and you were to see and you were to study all that he has contributed, it would blow your mind. Um, again, so, so Eternals is happening, right? So then I go, okay, so, so, so that's from my childhood, right? And then, and then Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Okay, that was born in the 70s. That's a Bronze Age book. That's my childhood. Okay, so, so there, that, there's that too. And then last week, to, un, you know, kind of to come alongside me and go, Rob, everything from your childhood, from your, if you were 10, 8, 9, 7, 12 in the 70s, that stuff that you're pulling off, I mean, Brie Larson, Carol Danvers, again, my childhood, Okay, they cast Jennifer Walters, She-Hulk, last week. And it was, you know, uh, as my buddies who run all the cool uh, comic book pop culture websites will tell you, news has been slow in the pandemic. Uh, news has been slow in this period because, uh, 
you basically are getting used to reading that Black Widow has been moved five times and, and Wonder Woman has been moved five times and these movies just getting, you know, kick the can down the, down the street a little further to another house, to another block. And eventually, you know, they're, they're going to settle on a date that they feel is, mo is, is, is most comfortable to release these giant mega million dollar, uh, you know, costly blockbusters that they hope to God you'll go see still. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But in the meantime, the, the, the Netflix shows, which tonight, before I came on with you guys, I saw the trailer for WandaVision. And there I'm sitting there going, okay, there's parts of this that are straight out of uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch, the miniseries that came out in the mid-80s by Richard Howell. He, he drew it. Uh, who, whoever wrote it is escaping me right now. I'm, I'm, I'm going on kind of, you know, autopilot here. But, but and the, and, 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 and the, the, the shots of, of Scarlet Witch in kind of a Halloween costume and Vision in a Halloween costume that makes them with very primary colors, primary red, primary green, yellow. Um, those are a reflection of the Richard Howell Scarlet Witch uh, Vision miniseries. And, and of course, uh, then they started, you know, I mean, that that's where they got together. They got married in my Scarlet Witch. Yes, kids, Scarlet Witch and Vision got together when I was collecting comics, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. They become lovers, android, mutant, weird, awesome, creep me out as a kid. Kind of, you're like, wow, this is kind of kinky. This is really kind of kinky. You got a robot android, a guy who's got like, you know, and that's what made Marvel Comics cool and weird and uncomfortable because you're like, uh, there's a robot with a chick here, uh, and okay, she's a mutant, and you know whatever. But she fell in love with with wires and parts. But he has a soul of someone else who they haven't really covered because they didn't get you into Simon Williams Wonder Man, which is from the original Stan and Jack run, and part of his soul and his personality and his mind and everything was downloaded into the vision. And boy, you're like, that's not in the movies. Yes, they keep all the good stuff out of the movies. Just remember that. They keep all the good stuff because they got to mainline that. They got to mainstream it, okay, for you. And, uh, you know, in the comic books, Tony Stark had a terrible, terrible alcoholic. Um, he was an alcoholic that eventually had to go into rehab. It nearly ruined his life. It was super dark. It was awesome. As a kid, you're going, man, I'm really feeling this guy. Tony Stark, he's a multimillionaire. He's He's got all these different conglomerates. He's a brilliant inventor, but man, in, in the seminal episode, it, it, everybody from the Bronze Age, from my from my you know age, I was like junior high. It's called Demon in a Bottle. I thought for sure they were going to go deeper into that, but then I realized, oh no no no, the, uh, Marvel slash Disney wants to keep it PG thirteen. They're never doing that storyline, so then we're going to go dark and give you the good 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 stuff, which is what where the comic books come in. And whether it's Walking Dead or Iron Man, the comics are better. I'm sorry. That's how I feel. Movies are razzle-dazzle. They're fun. Okay, but uh, the, 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 there's a, some Thanos stories that are in the comic books that I think are better than Endgame and Infinity War. And I know you're like, what? My kids would look at me the same way you're reacting to me now. But, man, Jim Starlin could, could draw some crazy stories. Avengers Annual 7 and I think it's Marvel 2 and 1 Annual 2 maybe. I don't know. 3. Uh, oh, my gosh. It's the most amazing story ever. In Infinity Gauntlet, as a comic, is and, and, and then Infinity Crusade, all that stuff. Amazing. Amazing. Did they do a good job adapting it and shaping it for a broad audience? They sure did. That's why Feige is as important as Feige is. But She-Hulk. Now, here's the deal. Um, The 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 girl who was uh, cast as She-Hulk, you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a horrible, awful... No good job when it comes to um, pronouncing her her name uh, because you know uh, I, I haven't heard this name out loud. Okay, so 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 
So, but it, but it hit. Like I said, getting back to my friends with the web, with with the websites and the pop culture sites, and this was like manna from heaven, which was bread that fed the Israelites after they left Egypt. Okay, again, my dad's a pastor. I'm going to reference manna from heaven. You need to know what that means. Okay, but her name, uh, you guys know her from Orphan Black. Okay, um. I watched a season of that. That was good. I, I it felt like forever ago, like 2013, 2014. I don't know. But so her name is Tatiana. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to butcher this. Maslani. Uh, is that right? I don't know. We're just going to call her Tatiana. Tatiana got cast. Orphan black um, actress talent got cast as Jennifer Walters. She-Hulk. You guys, I pulled She-Hulk one off the spinner rack. That book was advertised everywhere. I mean, full page ad, She-Hulk is coming, She-Hulk lives, grab She-Hulk number one, this is 1979, your friend and host, little Robbie Bobby Liefeld was uh, uh, 11, I'm 11, okay, I'm 11, I'm 12, I'm 12, okay, buying She-Hulk off the stands, it was written by Stanley. She-Hulk number one is the answer to your trivia question, what is the last comic book, not comic book project, comic book that Stanley wrote for Marvel? And it is She-Hulk number one. He left. He just did the premiere issue and he left John Buscema, uh, who also did the premiere issue of Ms. Marvel. Um, you know, this is the age. Spider-Woman, female Spider-Man. Uh, Ms. Marvel, who became your Brie Larson Captain Marvel, is the female version of Captain Marvel, who was a man for, you know, 20-some years. Then there's She-Hulk, who is the female version of the Hulk. And we're going to get into some of the reasons why She-Hulk even happened, but you got to understand, this is 1979. I went out to my garage, where I have so many of my comic book boxes, I knew I had seen it, and I pulled it out, and I'm holding it right now, and I will, can, 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 can you feel me, can, can you feel me, look, look through that newsprint, uh, are, are you with it, can you, can you, can you dig it, okay, 1979, 40 cents, that's four dimes, okay, that's shy of two quarters, right, 40 cents, Stan Lee proudly presents the She-Hulk Lives, number one collector's item, this cover is awesome, I remember grabbing this, I remember the day it hit, and, uh, you know, um, I, I could not have been more excited to hold this comic in my hands. It, um, it came out the end of 79. Okay. And, and here we are, Jennifer Walters becomes this big, beautiful, jolly green giant woman. Cause she kind of looks like the jolly, she kind of looks like she would be making out with the jolly green giant, not, not the Hulk. Because where Bruce Banner becomes lumpy and hokey. She became more svelte and like a green supermodel. I see now in the comics, it's weird. I'm not used to it. Now, right now, 2020, maybe since 2019, maybe maybe earlier, but She-Hulk, they're, they're, they're drawing her kind of like, if it was Austin Powers, he would say, she's a man, baby. She's a man, baby. Because she doesn't look svelte and supermodel anymore. Now she's She-Hulk, the the blocky, she didn't even look like a bodybuilder. She's, she's, She's kind of misproportioned, misshapen, giant shoulders, and I mean, I saw like a one of the the the, the books uh, that 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 goes along with their crossover this year, and and it had her in it, and she's really awkward and big, super arms and super giant thighs, and I don't know, she she's not in in 1979 in this book drawn by John B. Semmer, she looks like Red Sonia, who is you know the female companion to Conan, Robert E. Howard's. Conan and Ron, Red Sonia. She looks like Red Sonia with green, green paint. Okay. Uh, earlier tonight, I was watching Star Trek with J.J. Abrams, the original. Okay. And and when Chris Pine is in the Academy and he's making out with that um, the the green skin girl, 
um, before Uhura comes in and he has to jump under the bed. You guys remember the scene? Um, that 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 actress who's in the green. I mean, she's that's what She Hulk looks on this cover. She's you know this this beautiful kind of model looking, um, except maybe seven feet tall. She Hulk. Okay, so so She Hulk number one. Um, Jennifer Walters. We meet Bruce Banner's lawyer you know, cousin, and she gets a blood transfusion by Bruce, and she becomes, as a result of getting his radiated blood to save her, she becomes the all-powerful She-Hulk, and a legend is born. Interestingly enough, something I, I immediately thought about was, because I bought all of these books, I never missed an issue of She-Hulk, I think they canceled it, like, She-Hulk 25, 24, um, especially the end of the run of the most amazing covers by Michael Golden, who birthed Art Adams and all the rest of us, Image guys, maybe the single most influential, you know, he gave us the spaghetti webbing. He's, he's so, oh my gosh, Michael Golden. If like I could draw like him for like one, you know, one day, like, oh my gosh, what, what a feeling. He is truly a master of um, the artistic form, comic books. He, he's so just ridiculously, his work is so appealing and attractive. He did all the covers down the stretch for She-Hulk and it still got canceled. And She-Hulk never seems to get past a few, like, 20 issues. Two dozen issues is about the max they can put out. Maybe John Byrne pushed her a little higher than that when he brought her back in 1988-89. But it's like, She-Hulk never can really sustain her own interesting title. But that's okay. There's a Netflix showing, uh, show coming with her, so the whole world will know who she is. And she'll be super-duper important. And I think she's serving the same function for Marvel as a Netflix show as she served as a comic book. Why did we get She-Hulk? Why did 1979 herald the arrival of She-Hulk? Well, when, if you were a kid in 78, 77, 78, 79, you got to see the Incredible Hulk on television. Lou Ferrigno, um, you know, Bill Bixby were, um, you know, where his name was not Bruce Banner, it was David Banner, okay, on, on the TV show, but it was kind of the fugitive because he's, formatted like the famous fugitive tv series it was more of a drama than an action show which eventually you know as a kid it wore me down you would basically get two times the hulk would appear in the early 10 minutes and then the last 10 minutes and forget about it in the middle of the show it's all drama you know he would stop off in some new town and befriend some new widow or some got down in his luck guy and you know and it always ended with that sad dun 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 oh the saddest piano ever the saddest piano ever played for david banner okay david banner had the saddest piano and for you know the the incredible hulk but man that opening ding 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 oh man when it has him in the chair and he turns and oh man that opening credit scene always got you hyped on friday nights i would go out with my parents every friday night in the 70s was debt you know it's friday night let's go to the mall okay and for us there was two malls there was the buena park mall and there was the anaheim mall and the Anaheim Mall was enclosed, and the Buena Park Mall Mall was open air. And we loved the Buena Park Mall. And Buena Park Mall, conveniently near Beach Boulevard, uh, still there. Okay, I still go to the killer movie theater that they've um, established there. And uh, it's still a very interesting mall. It's part open air now, part enclosed. They, 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 they keep, you know, mixing it up. But we would always go to these malls from, like, you know, 5.30 to 7.30 every Friday grab a bite to eat, a slice of pizza. My mom, we do a little retail therapy. Maybe if I had saved up three bucks, two bucks, I could buy an action figure, a Hot Wheel. Okay, that was a big deal for me, whether it was James Bond's car, underwater car, or some cool 
you know, Speed Racer, or again, at this point, I mean, it's let's buy another Stormtrooper because, you know, I've got $2.99. I can take another Stormtrooper and, 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 and stack up my opposition to my Luke and, and Han and, and Obi-Wan, okay? But we got home by 8 o'clock because 8 o'clock, The Incredible Hulk came on. And my parents knew I loved it, and they loved it because my mom was raised on a diet of, um, it's going to, Bill Bixby. Bill Bixby, the actor who portrays David Banner. Perfect casting. He was uh, uh, in, 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 in a bunch of shows prior to The Incredible Hulk. He had a definite audience you know, connection. So making him the centerpiece of the show was perfect. So the Hulk becomes a giant hit for CBS. Huge monster hit for CBS television on Friday nights. If it moved off Friday nights, I guess I wasn't watching anymore. I watched for at least two solid seasons. Never missed an, ep- an episode. Um, we were always home from the mall, uh, from our whatever dinner and shopping on a Friday night to see uh, the Incredible Hulk. And, and even though I knew I was only going to get him twice an episode just to see him throw a file cabinet, you know, because the Hulk could throw a file cabinet like nobody else could ever throw a file cabinet or punch through a, a stucco wall. That was exciting to me. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Marvel immediately moved to capitalize on it. They put out a Hulk magazine that was everywhere in drugstores, grocery stores. It had probably more distribution um, available to it as a magazine than the comic book itself did. It was huge. It was really expensive, nice 48-page, full painted color. Uh, after just a few episodes, it started out um, black and white, but I think once the show kicked off, because it said, even on the regular comic, the regular standard 35 cents, 40 cents comic said, now on TV, or Marvel's TV sensation, every episode, because Hulk got big ratings. It was one of the top rated shows on television. Everybody was watching it. Marvel had their first genuine knock out of the park, massive hit. Stan had done his job. He had gone to Southern California to set up TV shows, and the pay dirt had finally come through for him. Hulk was a massive, consistent performer, um, and, 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 uh, you know, we as kids dug it, but so six million dollar man was on since 1975, 1974 on ABC network. And because, uh, you know, one, one season they introduced his childhood love, uh, which we all knew as Jamie Summers played by the amazing Lindsay Wagner. And the response, if you guys remember the first time the bionic woman appears, she dies. Okay. I'm going to blow that for you. If you go back and watch 1976's, you know, two part episode, you know, Jamie Summers, and, and Steve Austin get it on, they, they fall in love again. She is in a terrible accident and they give her bionics, but they don't take and they drive her crazy and she dies. Except the audience flooded ABC with a ton of mail. Like, what are you talking about? She can't be dead. We love her. It was the biggest audience response they had gotten to any episode of Six Million Dollar Man. So what happened is that they wrote her back into the show the next year. Okay, Jamie woke up. Oh, Steve, we didn't tell you. Jamie woke up and we hit her away because we didn't want to upset you. <laughs> it's great, but man, we loved we loved Jamie Summers, and and and, and they, they, so much so that they immediately spun her off. And in the middle of I think the following year, nineteen seventy seven, the Bionic Woman gets her own show. And guess what? Bionic Woman becomes more popular than the Six Million Dollar Man. And because the Bionic Woman was a spinoff show, spinoff they created the network created Bionic Woman. They owned Bionic Woman. The author of Cyborg, which was what Six Million Dollar Man was adapted from, a novel called Cyborg. That was owned by the rights, the, the guy who owned $6 million Man. But Universal, who produced the Bionic Woman, had created Bionic Woman and therefore owned it. So Stanley 
decides he is not having any of that. No one is going to make the she-hulk. CBS is not going to go, hey, Stan, we've got a, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a a woman Hulk, and we're gonna call her you know female Hulk or Shulk or you know whatever they whatever. Stan immediately acted uh, in the, in the wake of Bionic Woman to give us Ms. Marvel, Spider Woman. And She-Hulk. And that is your secret origin that you didn't know. And that's why you listen to the show. Because I was there. I lived it. I read my cool Starlog magazines and read all the interviews. And Stan Lee was very concerned that someone else could come up with a version of uh, you know, Lou Ferrigno's character. And then CBS would say, well, no, you can't have this. We have this. This is ours. So Stan, uh, the, the, the eventual writer after Stan debuts uh, She-Hulk number one. Again, Stan writes The Savage. I didn't, I left out, but it's The Savage She-Hulk number one with this awesome, awesome John Byrne, I mean, John Buscema cover and John Buscema art. This is such a great looking, beautiful comic book. I mean, I was totally, like I said, she is the sexy, jolly green giant. This is, my my 12-year-old self is completely down, my 11-year-old self is completely down with how hot She-Hulk is in 1979, okay? Um, I prefer her to the lumpy um, one we're getting now. So uh, you can have the lumpy one. I'm going to get the, the the red Sonia painted green, okay? Because I dig her. She's amazing. I'm holding this right now. It's a little frayed. I have friends who iron comics. You guys, for a higher grade, I need to get, I need to get this up, man. This needs to get to... This, I need to take this from a 9 to a, to like a 9.6, okay? So I, I got my work cut out for me with this comic book because I like to slab my comics too. We haven't gotten to that point yet, right? But oh, man. Or I put them in my hard shells. I just... I, I, I have my reader copies that I like to flip through, but I always need a really nice pristine copy and maybe we can, we can, we can, uh, you know, uh, 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 give this, press this one up, pressing, the pressing of comic books. I love it. My buddy Dave is an expert at it. So, but She-Hulk 1979 launches because, because Stan Lee is not going to have no network be creating his spinoffs for him. So Spider-Woman is born because this is the age. Spider-Woman launches, Ms. Marvel launches, She-Hulk launches because they got to protect those copyrights. They got to protect those, uh, the, the, that IP. They don't want to um, be in a position where it's suddenly like the Bionic Woman because I don't know if you guys remember, the Bionic Woman changes networks. Uh, after ABC doesn't want to go with that, through with the third season, I remember as a kid going, wait, Bionic Woman is not on ABC anymore. It's on NBC. And they gave her the, the Bionic Dog. You guys remember that? She got, the, she got a dog that season. Okay. This is like, Oh, it's so rich. My childhood. I, I had the best shows. So did you. Come on. You're down you're down with me. You know those are the best shows. SWAT, Alias Smith and Jones, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, uh, come on, Starsky and Hutch, um, Battlestar Galactica, the original Battlestar Galactica, get out of here. The Incredible Hulk, awesome. Those really weird um Spider Man made for TV movies that starred the kid from the Sound of Music, Nicholas Hammond, who is great, great, great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you did not recognize that he is the director that is, you know, yelling at Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, that is the kid from Sound of Music. He is just ridiculously talented. He was your Peter Parker on CBS. They did a bunch of two-hour uh, uh, movies. This is after CBS decided to go all in, man. They did a Doctor Strange movie um, that I, I watched live, and, and back then you didn't get repeats. It was like, man, that better live in my memory because they're never going to air it again, and they didn't, and, and so it still lives in... I, you can catch it on YouTube now, but the Hulk... The success of the Hulk gave them the Spider-Man straight-to-TV movies and gave you She-Hulk because Stan Lee was not going to have them uh, capitalize on his IP. And da David Anthony Kraft, who was an author I totally dug, he took over She-Hulk 
And he, in an interview, said that Stan literally was like, we have to get this book out six minutes ago. Like, it has to it has to get out. I'm sure John Buscema was recruited because John could do a book, especially according to Jim Shooter. John, John could do a book in like three days. So I'm sure, uh, I just remember seeing the ad, She-Hulk is coming, Savage She-Hulk, and getting so excited. And now we have Tatiana is, is coming. Orphan Black Lady is coming as She-Hulk. And, and, and it's, she's going to get her, her net, her, her, her Netflix show. And, uh, maybe Mark Ruffalo can, can jump in there. Cause you guys remember, remember Universal has the rights to the Hulk movie. And I don't think Marvel or Disney has ever completely sealed the deal to buy them back. So Ruffalo cannot be in his own movie. He's going to be featured in Avengers films or Thor films or be the sidekick, which is great. We love him. We've enjoyed him. Ragnarok is nothing without him. Uh, I really believe he was so important to the success of that movie that the, the chemistry just between him and Thor, Hemsworth, and Ruffalo was rich. But now Tatiana um, is gonna is gonna have her be be, the, be Jennifer Walters. And look, it's great. You can do like a legal show, you know, just like Daredevil. Daredevil. Marvel loves its lawyers. Okay, Marvel loves its lawyers maybe more um, than David Kelly, who 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 gave you you know L.A. Law along with Steve Bochco and 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 Ali McBeal and 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 you know. Every great, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the Dylan McDermott uh, law show too, but I mean, uh, David Kelly is the lawyer guy and, and Marvel loves lawyers almost as much as him. And, uh, and and just like the Netflix show had Matt Murdock always fall back on a few courtroom scenes and, 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 and his law offices and people, you know, him representing clients. I'm sure Jennifer Walters will have some cool, you know, compromising cases where oh my gosh what do you mean i'm representing a mob boss i can't be doing this and i'm and i'm in love with him he's so he's so hot i'm so attractive to this mob boss i can't believe i'm representing him he's so evil i'm sure that's on its way it's going to be on its way uh, not from netflix i have erred in saying netflix disney because they took the shows from netflix okay they took the shows from netflix no more netflix or netflix got mad because disney's going to do their own streaming whatever it, whatever the case Whoever, whoever tit for tatted the person first, um, the shows are gone from Netflix and they're going to eventually, now we're getting WandaVision and, and the Winter, Winter Soldier and the Falcon, all that stuff on Disney Plus. So Disney Plus, forgive me for saying Netflix. I caught my own mistake at the 30 minute mark. Okay. Disney Plus. I'm so conditioned. Okay. I'm so conditioned. Um, so, 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 so to say Netflix, cause I, I saw all those shows, you know, Jessica Jones and, and Daredevil, and if you if you can try and convince me that there was a better show than Daredevil season one, two, three, you're welcome to. I won't I won't agree with you. Um, but but you know now Disney Plus with She-Hulk and Tatiana Maslany is I mean, am I butchering that? It's too bad. We'll just call her orphan black talented actress who now has a new lease on life as a major Marvel production on Disney Plus with She-Hulk. Okay, started in my youth, so so I found. My True North again, I realized Shang-Chi, The Eternals, WandaVision. Yeah, there's some Tom King, I'm sure, in that WandaVision, but you've got to start at where they got married and got together in the first place, which is when little Robbie was pulling these off the spinner rack and getting creeped out by an android and a, and a, and a mutant lady making it in, in the first place, right? I mean, come on, because because they really, you know, they, they would make out and they would, you know, you'd see them emerge from the bedroom and you're like, whoa, Wanda is getting down with the, with the, with the android. Um so, so, and, and again, this is the seventies, man. The seventies were awesome. All of those guys who were dropping acid and doing the hard stuff and writing the comics. And I'm looking at you, David Anthony Kraft and you, Steve Englehart and you, Roy Thomas and you, Steve Gerber. These guys know who they are. They pushed Howard Chaykin. Oh, Jim Starlin. Nobody did more. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 
tripped out harder than Jim Starlin. He knows I love him. But some of those, I would read issues of Warlock as a kid and go, what did I just read? This is like some rad acid trip, but it was drawn so well. I was buying whatever he was selling, whatever mushroom made it through on those pages to Adam Warlock. Me and my boys were kind of more boring. Um, maybe, maybe some hashish, but I, 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 you know, I never saw Todd McFarlane do mushrooms and I never saw Eric Larson do cocaine. And, and I would be the guy who would have saw that we, we, we spent a lot of time together, you know? Um, but, but man, the seventies, that's where the shrooms were kicking in and, and, and the drugs were, you know, if you were music or the arts, you, you were, you were getting high and, and you were getting like chasing new highs. And some of the art that we got out of it is spectacular. Now, I, I don't believe Stan was doing any drugs when he gave a She-Hulk. Uh, and, and John Buscema was such a, he had like a, you know, haircut like my dad did. Like that, that kind of put that, um, not, nowadays you'd call it gel, but I think they actually they put grease in their hair. Grease it back and look all 1950s, you know, Ricky Ricardo style haircuts. Or, uh, or, or whoever father knew best, father knows best. You know, whatever Harriet and 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 Ozzy, Ozzy and Harriet. That uh, my parents, John Buscema, uh, they all look like all the dads had that hair. Uh, you know, um. So anyway, Happy Days guy. You know, the dad from Happy Days. So, She-Hulk was a part of my childhood, and it's soon going to be a part of your reality. So, I, I guess if you go from 1979 to 2020, that is a big ass leap. That is 41 years. My childhood is still representing strong. You gotta, you gotta give it to Fe Feige, man. You know, you got something like Cable, like Josh Brolin, and no, this is, I'm, I'm literally laying this out because it's funny to me. The other day, I found my gold edition covers to X Force One. We are, we aren't even at the re actual release of X Force One. But did you know that X Force One went back to press? Did you know that five million copies went back to press? I, it, it's an all gold cover. They, they, they fixed the logo because the logo on the first issue was awful. The, 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 the lines around it are so weak. And you'll see the bold, awesome logo that we give you from, you know, issue two on is on the gold reprint of X-Force. So, so we went back to press on a book that sold 5 million copies. Cable has had 300 issues where he is featured as Cable or in partnership with Cable and Deadpool. Deadpool, we know, is already over 300 issues. Cable is right behind him. She-Hulk does not have uh, uh, 300 issues. I'm not sure she has 100 issues. But you got to represent. You got to represent that. Feige has a plan, man, and that plan is written in bronze, okay, in bronze ink, because that dude was pulling comic books off the rack at least right around the time I was. He got his Jones off to the same comic books I did, and Mr. Feige has got, I mean, right now we are beaming IP that, that is going to come into your living room, that is going to be on the big screen, is all from 1976, okay? Master Shang-Chi, uh, that's actually 74, 73, 74. Then you've got Eternal is hard, 1976. And then She-Hulk is 1979. So Mr. Feige, thank you for keeping my childhood so relevant and so cool. And maybe the prices on these will, will these books will skyrocket and I can convince my wife, uh, who I now convince because it used to be my mom. Mom, no, 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 these are worth something. Don't put your, you know, Coke on my comic books anymore and give me a Pepsi ring. Uh, because you needed to use it as 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 a as a as a drink stop, so, so there wouldn't be a a ring on on the counter or a ring on our on our on our uh, you know our our tables. I mean, my mom had the greatest disrespect for the comics. Probably probably your mom did too. Okay, uh, or your dad, and they like used them as akin to ashtrays 
Well, one thing I haven't told you guys, I'm going to tell you right now, this is fantastic. I don't believe I've shared this before, but before we moved houses in the summer of 1977, I moved houses to, uh, we moved from uh, the, the where I always call the liquor store outlet, which was on the corner of, uh, we, we lived on Broadway in Magnolia in Orange County in Anaheim. And we moved to uh, uh, Euclid and, and uh, uh, Euclid and Ball Road in Anaheim. So we moved basically closer to Disneyland, nicer neighborhood, really fun, loved it, my favorite neighborhood. All my neighbor, I, I had Mike and, and, and Dave and Danny and Eddie and Mondo uh, and Craig. I, I, I never, it's the only time I ever had that many uh, kids my age. I moved in and they were all 11 and 12, just like I was. We played, you know, uh, BB guns. We played those disc guns. We, 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 we reenacted Star Wars Battlestar Galactica. You know, we watched TV together. We watched Elvira movies on the weekend. It was great. It was the best. I had the best, most enriched time. And at that point, that's when Foodland, uh, U-Totem, and, and 7-Eleven became my new, you know, uh, distribution networks. And and so much, I, I look at the shield and I'm like, I, I the minute I pulled out of the box, I'm like, I remember the Friday afternoon that I got this from the U-Totem. U-Totem, it was U and then T-O-T-E and then M, U-Totem. Weird name for a store, right? But it was kind of a knockoff 7-Eleven. Um, and that was literally, uh, I would walk there. It was four blocks from my house. I would walk there every day and buy whatever they had. If, if I got a quarter, I would go spend a quarter. If I got 40 cents, I'd go spend 40 cents. Um, I, I, I tried to buy up every comic. They were my drug. I think you guys have seen they are my drug. They are my passion. I love them. But uh, when we were moving from the other house, I had my buddy Nathan. Nathan was my buddy since since child. Like I, I don't remember a time without Nathan Doney in my life, man. Love that kid. We had the best time. We would run back from school. When the school bell rang, we would haul ass and run like crazy about seven blocks to my house because his box was about was was another three blocks down. So my house was the earliest and his parents wouldn't let him watch the amazing Spider-Man cartoon. And we're talking Spider-Man, Spider-Man, that one. Okay, that came on at 3.30. We would always miss the first five minutes because as, as much as we were hauling ass, you know what am I saying? It's, it's probably 11 blocks and then 13 to his house. Um, but our little, you know, five, fifth grade, fourth grade asses would run as far as they could and then we'd turn the corner, we'd get inside, we'd drop our backpacks, I'd get the signal going, get the antennas right, and we would watch Spider-Man, and then afterwards they had Speed Racer and um, a Japanese import called Ultraman on, on, on the UHF channels, okay? And and so that was our afternoons. Well, Nathan knew how much I love comics. He didn't really buy comics, but he wanted to read mine. So, you guys, all those early George Perez um uh, uh, Avengers, the issues 145, all the way through 160, but my favorite Ultron comics, 160, uh, 159, 160, 161, uh, all those books, the X, the, the, the Cockrum X-Men books. Okay. So you got giant size X-Men number one in there. You know, I, I, I got, I, I probably have a hundred comics. Okay. That I've collected, uh, for, for, for two years, master, master of Kung Fu, um, defenders, Marvel team ups with John Byrne. Um, you know, I put those all in a glad bag. Now, you don't, do not freak out. Bags and boards were not known to anyone. They were on my shelves in my closet. That's how I stacked them. Okay. This was not that there were no plastic bags and boards in existence that I was aware of in any shape or way, shape or form in 1977. I bagged up my comics and I gave them to Nathan. I said, check them out, read them all. And, uh, 
and, and, and I'll get them from you in a couple weeks. You know, we got to move. I'll get them once we get into the new house. So a couple weeks pass. I go on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I knock on the door and Mrs. Doney answers. And I say, hi, Mrs. Doney. And Mrs. Doney was uh, more of what you would say, more, let's see, super religious and more kind of super ultra, ultra conservative. Like, like, like uh, just they, they ran a much stricter, more biblically strict uh, religious household than my family did. And my dad was a pastor. Okay. But, but his dad was a Navy chaplain. And you did not want to mess with Pat Doney, his dad. His dad was a badass, didn't want to mess with him. And uh, Mrs. Doney answers the phone. And I say, hey, Mrs. Doney, and Nathan here. No, Nathan's not here. He's off with his dad. He won't be home till after, you know, after the sun goes down tonight. And I said, oh, well, Mrs. Doney, I was curious. I just, um, I was I was coming by to get my comic books back. I gave Nathan a bag of comics. And when I say glad, uh, a bag of comics, remember, I'm talking a glad trash bag full of comic books. And she leans in into me against that door. She's actually talking to me through the screen door, okay? She opens the door and the screen is separating her and me. She goes, Robbie, I threw those horrible comics away. You shouldn't be reading those. And, and certainly Nathan was not going to read those. Th th those are not what you should be reading. I don't believe she said they were from the devil, but that's kind of the implication. Like, I should not be reading them. Nathan would never is never going to read them. And you should not be reading them. And those are not something that I should be spending time with. And if I left out, she threw them away. She threw them all away. You guys, it's the first time I remember trying, like, uh, I'm, I'm swallowing all of my fear and panic and rage. Because how am I going to replace those comics? Okay? Books I bought in 1976, 1975, they're gone. So when I first found out that there were comic stores, I started buying as many back as I could. Okay? I have a few that didn't make the trash bag. But unfortunately, you know, by 1980, when I discovered a comic book store, uh, you know, I, I kept everything. But by 1977, uh, now I'm buying comics, like I said, from the Foodland and the Utotem and everything from the June 77, so basically the Star Wars adaptations, like May, right, right on there, because we moved when Star Wars opened on Memorial Day, like right around that time. We got into the new house. And, and again, I had a new network of, of three walkable, skateboardable, bike rideable stores that I would buy comics from before I would start going to comic stores in late 1980, early 1981. And that is when I remember the first time I was like, oh, I, I was in a comic store and they had back issues. And I looked and I said, oh, how much is this? And they're like, oh, that's that's 12 bucks to buy back my George Perez, you know, uh, Avengers 160. I'm like, what? 12 bucks? You know? Talk to the guy down to 10 bucks. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, I, my, my, my anger like renewed itself three years later after Mrs. Doney chopped up all my, I mean, she, she, I threw those away, Robbie. I threw them away. You shouldn't be spending time. I'm like, woman, these comics are going to make me something. Listen, don't be throwing away my comics, right? So She-Hulk, the Bronze Age, little, little comic book trash story for you. But this brings us to what the hell was going on in DC Comics in the 90s, right? Okay, we're going to spend a little time here talking about one guy who stands out to me who is maybe, I think, the MVP of DC Comics for life. Just like, just like if you guys are into sports, okay, the NBA has a, the NBA has a commissioner named Adam Silver, okay? And in, I think, 2013, 2014, when uh, the Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, who also talked like, uh, you know, heavens to Murgatroyd, like... Uh, Who's that guy? Not Pink Panther, but uh, 
It'll come to me. But he, but he, <laughs> Donald Sterling, the biggest creep that ever owned uh, a, 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 an NBA franchise, had gotten himself in all sorts of trouble. He was a racist. He was having affairs. He was so Adam Silver. Everyone was wondering what's Adam Silver going to do. He's a new commissioner. He's taken over for David Stern. He's only been in the spot for a while. Is he going to drop the hammer on Donald Sterling? Is he going to forcibly take the team away from him? Is he going to force a sale? Because that's all the stuff that he he could do. He could do all of that. And me and my kids watched as Adam Silver came out and he took the podium and he said, uh, "Today I am here." to tell you that Donald Sterling has been banned from the NBA for life. For life. That's exactly how he said it. For life. He wanted to get banned from the NBA dot, 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 pause, pause. For life. Look it up on YouTube. It's awesome. And that's when we were howling. Donald Sterling, gonzo, okay? And, and eventually Steve Ballmer comes in, buys the team, and they still aren't any good. Sorry if you're a Clippers fan. But anyway, bottom line is, I believe this next guy, who I'm going to discuss is DC's MVP for life. Like Adam Silver says, for life. And his name is Dan Jurgens. Dan Jurgens uh, first became known to me when he took over the Warlord for Mike Grell. Mike Grell was a fantastic talent that we don't talk enough about. He did the Legion of Superheroes. He made them super ridiculously commercial and appealing in the 70s. Uh, started out drawing uh, the last Jim Shooter stories that Jim would write for DC in like 74, uh, 75 before G Jim would go over to, you know, uh, Marvel comics. But Jim Shooter, remember, started, started writing the Legion of Superheroes when he was 15 years old. Okay. Sending in stories to DC that they had illustrated. This guy, what a career. But Mike Grell, uh, his, his, his first work was still doing some cool, great, I even reread them. I mean, great, great standalone one issue stories. Legion did a lot of that. No multi-part epics, just, you know, one 16, 17 page uh, story to be solved. You know, a new group of Legionnaires, want a new group of characters want to try out and, and try out for the Legion and you're not stopping us is on the cover. And you get to know these new kind of characters that won't be stopped and want their place in the Legion hierarchy and uh, just so many cool stories. And uh, Mike Grell had come to life on the Legion and then uh, did some Green Lanterns uh, shortly after that and became a really big deal on Green Lantern and then was rewarded with Warlord, his own, basically creator-owned, except he didn't own it, uh, series that he produced about a guy who uh, punches through to like the middle of the earth and, and finds an entirely different new civilization, dinosaurs, savages, uh, wizards, warlocks, golems all of it it's a fantastic series but he after you know maybe five years uh decided to step off from the artistic reins and this guy named dan jurgens takes over and dan jurgens is pretty damn good first time i saw him really solid base a little bit of gil kane a little bit of george perez i always love me some dan jurgens dan jurgens later went on to give you booster gold he created booster gold wrote wrote drew illustrated conceived of introduced the world to booster gold in 1986, I was a huge Booster Gold fan. I'm, I'm anything Dan Jurgens is doing, I'm always buying it. He's great. He delivers. It's commercial. It's powerful. He speaks fluent comic book. He cut his teeth on Warlord. He does a series called Sun Devils because the guy can also, you know, like do like two books a month practically. 
But in the 90s, right in the dawn of the 90s, they give him Superman. He will eventually be one of the architects of the death of Superman and give you all that crazy doomsday stuff that, that had everybody in a frenzy. And that stuff is Hall of Fame, like, banner accomplishments. The, the, the death of Superman and especially the reign of Superman, I, I think, is one of the best kind of sagas uh, that, that DC's ever done. I could, th th there was one a week, Action Comics, Superman, Man of Steel. Uh, there's another one I'm missing. But uh, there was it was like you got a chapter a week, and they coordinated it so brilliantly, and Dan Jurgens was right there at the forefront. There was other guys, J Jerry Ordway. But here's the thing. When Dan comes on Superman, and he has two great embellishers that he works with, but Art Tiber, uh, who, again, like I said, grew up with here in Orange County, and Brett Breeding, who I had gotten to know as a ridiculously talented inker slash finisher over at Marvel Comics through the late 70s, early 80s. They join with Dan, and they uh, work with... And Dan just does these great Superman stories. I mean, whether it's Lobo, whether it's these kind of challenges, challenges the unknown characters, kind of a, a knockoff of the Fantastic Four, whether he has a race with the Flash. Um, the Dan Jurgens era on Superman, like, like it, was, it, was a, it was a perfect fit. And with those two guys, Dan, great storyteller, great, brilliant, beautiful art, great writer, artist, unsung, doesn't get the attention he deserves, has been doing it, continues to do it to this day. Um, you have read so many. He eventually went to Marvel. He did Captain America. He wrote some Spider-Man. Um, he drew both, some of both. Uh, I think he wrote Thor for a while. I mean, Dan has been all around the world. I think he, he drew some Justice League. I'm completely blanking. I mean, there's literally, I don't think any title that Dan hasn't worked on. He is consummate. He, he always delivers. The product never drops below a certain threshold of satisfaction and commercial appeal. And he was, I think, the most, um, the, the guy that I was, I just didn't understand. After John Byrne left Superman, I expected it to suck. I didn't expect to like it more than when, um, than when John Byrne was doing it. I liked it more under Dan Jurgens. And I'm telling you, so I've got this book right here. It's uh, put out by DK uh, Publishing, DK Books. It's DC Comics Year by Year, a visual chronicle. They've even released an updated one. Uh, and this one takes you year by year, era by era. 1990, it says. The past is always knocking at the door, trying to break through into today, okay? It says here, as a new decade begins, other comic book companies were moving away from a focus on writing in favor of extravagant and attractive art. I think they're probably talking about Marvel here. Are you trying to be clever? And foil enhanced covers. Oh, no, 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 no. That wouldn't come until you would probably do in DC. Although DC would later occasionally use embossed covers and hire some of the imitators of this new style of artwork, the company's immediate reaction was simple. Story, story, story. Concentrate on story. Look, that's a little bit... Um, willy-nilly now i'm gonna have to go back to 1989 and, and how do they explain away how they were covering um their, their bat oh legends in the making the last batman solo ongoing series had debuted almost 50 years ago it was high time legends of the dark knight didn't just give readers another batman comic they gave them an entirely new animal and set new trends and formats a trendsetter in more ways than one when legends of the dark knight debuted it offered four different colored protective extra covers. Is that what we're calling the, the construction paper? Extra protective covers, okay? Um, all placed over the normal covers. 
This unwittingly, okay, they're going to take credit for it, gave birth to the variant age of comic books. Okay, so at least they covered this, all right? So, because it's funny, in the 90s here, they're, they're like, hey, a new era was upon us, and these other people were doing flashy art. No, you were doing everything you're accusing everyone else of doing. Come on. So, but right here, in, 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 in February of 1990, Superman races the Flash. They decide to go on record once again. There was a giant tabloid-sized Treasury Edition. I've covered those on earlier issues that I love so much that um, where, where, where they reprinted it and, and it um, had a brand new spanking awesome, I think, Garcia Lopez cover of Superman Racing the Flash. I loved that as a kid. Um, they now had Wally West uh, race Superman. Again, Dan Jurgens, Art to Bear, uh, to the rescue here. Um, and then, again, Dan introduced like this kind of knockoff Fantastic Four group um, uh, in, in, in Superman and uh, Hank Henshaw and Solar Flares and his wife and friends in the space shuttle. Does that sound familiar? Dan Jurgens is tearing it up the 90s. But really, what you also get is you get a new Green Lantern number one with Pat Broderick, which was nice. Um, more miniseries, okay? Um, uh, you know, that, that really when you walk through... The big deal, I think, was Lobo number one. I think Lobo, because Lobo was as 90s as they come, chains, uh, uh, a lot of sexual innuendo, super violent, R-rated violence, biker gear. He, he rode a space bike. Lobo um, should be one of the big, bright, shiny stars of now, the same way Venom and Deadpool and Cable are still in the in the Marvel Universe. Lobo should still be that. They, they just can't seem to recapture that Lobo magic. Maybe Donny Cates can go over to DC and recapture that. Um, maybe Marvel will let Donny Cates recapture it with Deadpool first. Uh, fingers crossed, everybody. Um, but the thing is, Lobo was a huge, big deal. Um, Giffen, Alan Grant, Simon Beasley, uh, the Lobo miniseries was groundbreaking. It, it was probably the most resonant thing. Beasley's art was, was a huge attraction. He drew phenomenally, very detailed, extremely muscular he's the first guy i know dale keown is kind of famous for putting the, the veins through the arms on the hulk but nobody did more veins popping out of arms and backs and chests um than simon beasley he was the ultimate ripped musculature super carved out musculature bodybuilder yeah i'm looking over i mean I'm, I'm several pages in okay uh there was really nothing going on in batman you know really i'm, I'm, I'm books of magic they're, they're saying they put out books, books of magic. The, the new Superman that John Byrne started over hit issue 50. Um, Shade the Changing Man got a new series under Pete Milligan and Chris Pacello. Like, this is, the 90s is just not that big of a deal until Image scares the GB holy crap out of DC Comics. Okay? They, 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 and, and that's when they completely shift in turn. So when you're like, hey, Rob, you're not covering the 90s no i i we're not there yet we're not there yet um i'm gonna wrap this up uh because you guys have also asked me and we have a little time here i'm gonna walk you through this story because this is gonna really walk us through the next episode get us queued up so some of you guys have asked me about the levi's 501 commercial and how that came to be so let's do it okay levi's 501 uh had a campaign in uh a 1990 they had like a, a couple ads, maybe four spotlight ads ran on MTV. And I cannot tell you again, you have to understand MTV was on from like nine o'clock uh, to nine o'clock in my house. I, it was background music. If I wasn't at the office and I was at home, MTV was on. 
the 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 Madonna REM, you know what what you know um um Lily Vanilli. I mean, this is the stuff they're playing in 1990. But they're showing these Levi's ads, and I I remember one was a guy talking backwards. One of the season one one was a guy who was talking backwards, and he did it wearing his 501s. Okay, well. I am going out to WonderCon in 19, spring of 1991. Okay, I've been on the New Mutants. I'm probably writing New Mutants 98, 99, finishing up 100. Um, no, no, that's not true. Those have already come out. I am writing X-Force number one. We already have the sales in X-Force number one. It's May of 1991. I already know that, that or late April, the numbers have already come in, that the sniff of the numbers, I know X-Force is going to be number one. So when I say... On the answer, when I call the number that I'm going to see here in a minute, and I say to them that I'm on the num I have the number one comic in America, it's because I've already got the numbers. Marvel's already said, Rob, we're, we're, we're three million and climbing, four million and climbing. Okay, so I'm bag slung over my shoulder, other bag, art bag over my shoulder, other bag in my hand. I am about, I'm walking over to turn the TV off because I'm going to turn and walk out the front door and go down to the garage. I'm in a condo uh, in Fullerton, California, and I'm going to drive to the airport where I'm going to park the car, catch the plane, and do the one-hour flight up to Oakland for WonderCon. And as I'm about to turn the TV off, I've never seen this before. After the Levi's ad, it says, like, words on the screen and a voice to accompany the words. Hey, do you do something interesting in your 501s? Call us. Tell us what you do. We're looking for some for interesting... Um, non run of the mill jobs that you do in your 501s call this number and i grabbed the pad and i wrote the number down and i ran over because i'm like man if they're showing this ad i should call in and i picked up the call and i dialed in and it said at this time you know it, you know once you hit this number hit star you will leave a message when it's done hit pound and we will get back to you if we deem you worthy i said hi levi's 501 my name is rob Leifeld. I draw comic books for a living. I do them in my uh, 501 jeans and I draw the number one comic book in America. My number is da 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 da. Thank you. Click. And I walked out the door, chuckled to myself. You know, it's like entering a contest, right? You know, whether it's a scratcher or the lottery or whatever. I, I phoned in and I went to WonderCon and I did my thing and I am drawing, um, I am inking part of X-Force number one. I am at the far right edge of my table at my office in Brea, California, on the second story, looking out the blinds as the sun is setting, and it's, it's you know, early summer, the phone rings. I pick it up. It's just like, it, it, I thought it was one of my friends calling me, because again, it's probably like 8, 8, 15. It's kind of late to get a business call. Nobody from Marvel ever called me really after 6 o'clock. So I pick it up, and it says, hey, is this Rob Liefeld? I said, this is Rob Liefeld. How you doing? And they're like, hey, we are from... I forget the name of the ad company, but it was a huge ad company. And they say, we represent uh, Levi's 501. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is about that call. This is about the ad. And they're like, you are one of our finalists. We want to come and schedule a time to come down and see you guys or, or meet you and, and tour your office and see what you do. And uh, is there a time we can come do that as we, as we you know, kind of whittle down the list and decide who, who we're going to make the cut? And I said, yeah, sure. And they're like, can we come by next Tuesday? I said, yeah, let's let's come by next Tuesday, 11 o'clock, whatever. So my buddy, Marat Michaels, is a teenager. He is my assistant. He fills in blacks on the pages and a big, you know, he'll he'll ink panel borders. He'll transfer my pages when I draw them and, and blow them up from eight and a half by 11 to 11 by 17. 
He will uh, put my lines that were once small that were now big on the light table. And then so then I have a pen, a, my pencil structure gets transferred and then I would ink over it. I don't have that anymore. I now do that same process, but I hit print on my 11 by 17 printer and I print it out on a board and I ink it. But back then I paid Marat. Um, we had great times. We would play basketball. We would get Taco Bell and eat terrible fast food and talk comics and laugh and talk art all day long. But um, Marat was there the day that the that the ad company came by and they filmed my desks. I had three drawing tables in my office in my loft that overlooked another uh, lower area that also had a drawing table and you know box of comic shelves, everything exactly what you see in the commercial when it opens uh, in 1991. It says Florida, California, and I'm sitting there drawing that is exactly my office, except it's not my office at all. That is the magic of Hollywood. They leave, say thank you. They get some B-roll. They've committed. You know, they, they had me on camera. They asked me a couple questions. They sat down on the couch. They filmed me. They asked some questions. They said, thank you. I'm just in a t-shirt and my jeans. And they uh, say, we'll get back to you. You know, don't call us. We'll call you. Great. Okay. Keep Keeping it going. Still drawing X-Force. Uh, the, the, the entire first issue is now done. I am in the middle of issue two, again, the sales are in for issue one, and, and June is a few weeks away. The release of X-Force number one is a few weeks away. So as I'm, you know, a couple weeks pass, and I get the call. Hey, Rob, this is so-and-so from Levi, and I have the ad agency on the phone, and here's the great news. We have selected you to be part of our year two campaign. We love what you do. We think you make a great subject. We are going to schedule a date. Spike Lee directs these spots, which I already knew, but I'm like, no way. He's going to come and shoot your office. Let's book a time. Let's make it June. You know, let's get it on the books. I said, great, fantastic. I'm so excited. Spike Lee is going to come to my office. He's going to film me. This is the most amazing thing. I can't believe this. And you're going to go, Rob, why'd you make that phone call? Was it to be a star? Give me a break. Nobody became a star off being in commercials. Those ad campaigns highlighted people doing unique things. And I felt like, because of my passion for comics, um, which was even fresher back then, because you got to believe if, 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 I, if I have this passion for comic books in my 50s, okay, imagine how burning bright it was, you know, in, in 1991, in my 20s, when I'm 22 years old. So they uh, say they're going to come out. They're going to film this commercial. I'm so excited. It'll be comic books on the air regularly. Comic books on the air regularly. Now, like I said, I've already, I am the number one best-selling comic book in America for three months, for June, July, and August until the late month, Jim will start arriving, and those books go through September, one a month for five weeks, and X-Men gets the new number one. But for that brief window, uh, that summer, I was the top-selling comic. Even after that, you know, X-Force 2 is number one, X-Force 3 is number one, I get knocked at issue four, and, and then we just get used to being the number two best-selling comic, okay? But at this time, it was valid. It's just like when your movie opens number one, it may not be number one in the third week, but you know, you opened, you were the number one something. So I don't know why. I didn't ever ask them why they decided. I said, oh, what was the criteria? I never had that conversation. I just knew that I made the cut. I didn't overthink it. One week before they come to my office to film me, I get the call. Hey, Rob, Spike is not going to be able to come out and film you. We need you to come here. We need you to come to his 40 Acres and a Mule uh, soundstage in Brooklyn. And we need for you to be here for a minimum of two days. The shoot's going to be over two days. We're going to do it in, in Spike's facilities, at Spike's facilities. 
and I hope that's okay with you. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Sounds good to me. They said, we need you to box up everything that was on your wall, all the stuff in your office, and send it to us via FedEx tomorrow because we're going to recreate your office here in Brooklyn at the facilities. I'm like, okay, great. Uh, they, they said, we'll replicate your tables. We can do all that. Uh, we've got all that on film. We know what it looks like, but we need the actual, all the stuff that you have on your walls, your art, your stuff on the bulletin board. So we did that, sent it off to them. They booked me a ticket. I fly Murat out because I'm on a deadline at this point. Uh, I got, I, I got to keep hitting my marks. So Murat and I are put up in the nicest, holy crud, the nicest hotel I had ever been in. Maybe still to this day in, uh, in Manhattan, I mean, it, the golden rooms, gigantic beds, amazing bathroom, we're like a villa suite. Um, but when we were done, the night we got in, we stayed up. Uh, I was inking X-Force 2. The last part of X-Force 2 where Shatterstar and uh, and the team and Cable works out the team in the forest. I'd already done the Deadpool Kane uh, section. That was already complete. Those first 10 pages are done. Uh, X-Force number one hasn't shipped yet. It's shipping like in two weeks. It's going to be on the stands. Uh, into June, and so I've got X-Force 2, and, I'm, and I've got layouts for X-Force 3, so Murat and I are just jamming, we're laughing. Next day, we wake up, crack of dawn, we're driven to the facility. Why am I telling you this? Well, I get in there, and there's these um, female executives from the ad agency and Levi Strauss, and they meet me uh, at the facility. We go into Spikes. He has a couple sound stages, really great facility in Brooklyn, and we... Uh, are dropped off by the car. We walk in. They hand me a bunch of t-shirts and jeans, and they said, go in the dressing room. We, we want to see what we're going to have you wear. And so Marat's just chilling on the side. Marat can bear witness to all of the crazy uncomfortableness that I'm going to share with you today. And uh, and so I go inside, and I put on the first pair of jeans and the first mustard yellow t-shirt. My wife has always been like, why did you wear that mustard yellow t-shirt? I'm like, do you think I decided I have never worn mustard yellow before or since? But in that ad, you see me for three quarters of it. I am in that mustard yellow shirt that they asked me to wear. I guess I'm a primary color because I do comic books and whatever. So I go into the dressing room. I put on this shirt. I put on his jeans. I walk out and they ask me to turn around. And I'm like, okay. And the three high heeled, like power suit, um, big hair, 1991 executive ladies, proclaim as loud as they can oh my god he has no ass oh my god he has no ass at this point i think i shrink like uh you know 10 sizes smaller like i feel like i'm you know the size of ant-man or the atom out of just sheer like emasculation and i'm like yeah sorry i don't have a great butt okay and they're like and next time you now I'm, I'm, this is going to replace i can't draw feet it's going to be, you have no ass. I don't have an ass. I can't replace it. I'm not going to be Kim Kardashian. I'm not buying a pair of um, replacement cheeks. Okay. So um, they, they, they say this and, and there's a pause. I'm like, well, is that kind of problem? And they're like, well, let's try a different pair of jeans. So then they, they have me try on more jeans until my ass is satisfactory. I was not aware this was Jordash and I was selling my flat male ass for jeans. I thought I was there to draw comics, but this is the world of high-end advertising and Levi Strauss. And this is where I'm at. I finally meet their criteria. They're kind of talking under their breath. I guess I'm going to, you know, do it. And I'm like, you had videotape on me. I'm in my jeans, in t-shirts when you, you know, videoed me and got me this far. But at this point, I was like, this is already uncomfortable. So then they lead me to this makeshift. I walk in 
to the soundstage area where they're going to film me in the opening scene that you see at the beginning of that um, commercial. And it is exactly, I am like in a time machine. I am in Florida in California. They have absolutely recreated my office to a T. The desk, the chair, everything I sent them. I am, they've got a light outside the, um, the, the blinds that they have replicated for my office. And it's a perfect afternoon gleam through. I mean, it's so, oh my gosh, that is, that is an absolute recreation of my office. But I am not in my office. I'm in Brooklyn. So at the start, Spike comes over, says, hey, how you doing? This is what we're going to do. And he says, uh, yo, Rob, <clears throat> so I, 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 I want you to read the dialogue off the pages as, as, you, as, you, as you draw. And I said, oh, excuse me? And I have that fight scene, okay? I have Feral battling Shatterstar, okay? And he grabs the page and he goes, can I, can I, can I read off the side? I go, yeah, sure. 11 by 17 page. You see me inking it in the, in the, in the commercial. And it says, stop. Don't do that. Stop, Feral. Can't can't you just kind of read that out loud? That's why I want. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have the. There's a dolly around me, you guys. There is dolly track, which is the mobile track that they are gonna push the camera in a you know 180 degrees around me. Okay, and I mean there's lighting technician. We're gonna we're gonna make a commercial, and now Spike Lee is act asking me to read the dialogue out loud, and I go, well, I I don't do that when I draw. Oh, come on, he goes. He goes, yeah, you know, you know, you, come on, you can do this. You can do this while you draw, right? You, you, you speak this stuff out loud. That, that's what I'm looking for. I said, uh, but, but that's acting. And I'm not an actor. And he kind of looks like me like, we're going to give this a shot. You're going to do this for me, right? I'm like, okay. So you guys, they go one, two, three, you know, ready, uh, action. And the camera starts rolling around the dolly. And this is what I do. I am inking and applying my ink strokes. And I am mumbling like this stop 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 feral don't uh. nervous as hell can't mumble can't form words i am completely freezing in front of the hot lights and spike goes cut he walks over and he's like <clears throat> yo rock you know come on man give, give, give us give, give, give us some effort here man come on Spike's totally cool. He, he's so cool to me this entire day, but he's really trying to push me to do this. And after third, three times of me going, stop shatter. I mean, I'm off. I'm, I'm freezing up. I am totally. Marat was there. Marat can tell you this. I think he's like, we're gonna get kicked off the soundstage. They're gonna shut down. Spike goes, all right, all right. And 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 when he says says cut for the third time, one of the executives on the other side of the production goes, oh, looks like we made a mistake getting this guy. I'm like, awesome. I'm everybody's disappointment this afternoon. How awesome is this? This is great. So, you know, I'm asked to speak the dialogue out loud and I'm disappointing everybody because I didn't bring my best acting skills because good God, I thought this was because I drew comics, but now there's this different, whatever. Well, Spike goes, everybody take a break. I'm going to recalibrate what we're doing. And he's like, <clears throat> comes over, grabs a chair and sits in front of me, goes, Look, relax. I'm just going to sit here and talk to you. How about we just talk comics? I go, okay. And at that point, I'm like, Spike Lee knows comics? And he's like, uh, yeah, we're just going to do this. You're going to have a camera on you. And so I'm just going to basically interview you, make you comfortable. Let's try that. I go, okay. And so he starts off and he goes, yo, what's your, what, what, what's your first comic? I said, oh, Fantasy Four. And he's like, oh, yeah, Fantasy Four, man. I love Black Panther. I love Black Panther. I love King T'Challa. Prince T'Challa, love the Fantasy Four. Well, what else you like? What else you like? You're a DC guy, you're a Marvel guy. 
and we have this back and forth conversation for about 20 minutes on camera that is uh, so comfortable. And when you see me go, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, oh, they hated it when he talks about my parents. He then moved off of our shared love of history of comics. And he's like, well, how old are you when you broke in? And I'd be like, well, I was you know, 18. And what did your parents think? Oh, they didn't like it. They didn't. Why didn't they like it? Well, they didn't think I could pay the bills. Okay. You know, and then he said during the break, he said, hey, can you draw me uh, a superhero version of me? Spike Lee. I said, sure, I'll do that. Because now I just want to impress them because I've already had ad executives tell me I have no ass. And one said, oh my gosh, we got the wrong guy. Okay, so uh, bearing my soul here, giving you the fun as it went down, as I experienced it. I uh, set to work. Uh, by now it's lunch and I'm drawing Spike and I drew, draw a Spike and a camera on his head. And he's like, all right, what are we calling this guy? I go, the Spike Man. He's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to stand here and ask you about the Spike Man. That's our next thing we're filming. And that's in the commercial when you hear him go, and who's this? And I go, it's the Spike Man. He records the evil, you know, he records evildoers or wrongdoers or whatever. And he's like, you know, whatever. And trust me, after it was done, he's like, I can keep this, right? So Spike Lee has the Spike Man drawing somewhere in his collection. Uh, you know, he has uh, uh, that, that drawing from that commercial. It did not leave with me. I was happy to give it to him. I was so excited to work with him. And again, he eased everything when he did that interview with me. He took all my anxieties away. I think he was like, this kid can't pull this off. He's not going to read the dialogue the way I want. I just, I, you know, <laughs> somebody else out there, you're like, I would have done it. I could have pulled it off. Uh, uh, good for you. It, that's how it went down that day. So anyway, they get more B-roll and you drawing. Then uh, the next day, they said, come back. We're going to film you on a platform. You're going to have a different shirt on. And we're going to ask you, you know, Spikes. And he yelled at me and say, yo, rah, you fly button. And I'm supposed to say, Check down, open the fly, look up and go, yeah, it's Button. And I must have said that the next day in my new Levi's 501 shirt, the white shirt that you see me in at the end. I must have said that maybe 30 takes. All right, all right, all right, Rob, Rob, here we go again, here we go again. Rob, yo, your fly Button. And I would do it again and again and again. And thank God he kept that B-roll rolling, okay? So whatever you see, all the interviews, me in front of a blue screen, uh, the back and forth and all the razzle dazzle, you know, camera moves he spins on the artwork and everything. That is all Spike's mastery. That commercial, he uh, stitched together a bunch of uh, B roll blunders, nervous kid. The interview went so far into just making me comfortable. Because again, I've never filmed anything in my life. And now I know what it's like to have hot lights and cameras and people who are paid to get this done and you're disappointing them and your ass is flat and somehow that matters because I didn't know these were sexy jeans we're trying to sell. And of course I'm saying all this with a big smile on my face and tongue, tongue on my cheek. Cause who cares? Like I, I mean, at that point it's like, what are you gonna do? I, I, I got to come to New York because after hours, both days I went to Marvel. I dropped into Marvel. I said hi to my editor. I visited everybody there. I got to see what everybody else was doing. I told them about the commercial. So Marvel had to clear all the images. So after two days on you know, the lot and hanging out with Spike Lee and shooting all this. I'm, 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 I can't really dwell on it more than I am. I mean, like I said, 30 takes is 30 takes and look down, open your fly, yell back, yo, my fly's button. Okay. I figured they got what they needed. Spike shook my hand, said, thanks a lot, man. Fun shooting this. It was fun shooting these spots and, uh, we'll let you know when they're going to air. Well, I, I'm, I'm like, man, this, this, this situation was probably so horrible for all of them. I don't know if they're ever going to air, but anyway, I go to Marvel. I visit Marvel. We we um, work in the hotel room at night. And on the third day, 
Uh, so there's a travel day. We're there two days. And then the next day we wake up, Marat and I fly home and we get back to work the next day, you know, back. So it's basically kind of a week, it's took a week of, uh, of our time. And I never hear of it again. I mean, I shoot this in June and maybe they're never going to air. Okay. X-Force 1 hits exactly on schedule. X-Force 2 hits. X-Force 3 hits. I get the call from the scripter of X-Force. He calls me up uh, one afternoon, uh, probably in August, and he's laughing. And he says, hey, we got your commercial in. And at that point, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they have the commercial. Like, it's actually going to happen. Like, I hadn't heard about it in months, you know. They shot it. They never told me when it was going to air. I, I hadn't seen any of them air at all. So I knew like, well, maybe they scrapped the whole campaign or maybe it's going to happen in the fall, which is exactly what was going to start happening. But uh, the scripter says, have you seen this? And I said, no. And he goes, he chuckles and he says, I got to be honest. You're terrible in this. You're terrible. I mean, I hope you don't mind, but we're all having a good time, like laughing at this thing. He goes, you, you come off really poorly. And I'm like, I'm grinning because I, I, I kind of can read a sense of envy. And uh, I, I go, well, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but it exists. And that's all I know. And I and I just said, hey, why did you guys get a copy of it before me? And he's like, we have to clear everything in here. Marvel's got to sign off on all these images. He goes, I mean, the good thing is it's wall to wall your artwork. I'm like, fantastic. Awesome. Billboards for my art. There's a bit of a misnomer. Again, you're going to read sometimes, which, and I, I do, this is, I don't address a lot of stuff, but this I do address. The absolute 100% lie is that X-Force or my career or whatever took off after this uh, commercial aired. Look, as I said, uh, when I made the call in that late spring, we already had the numbers. Um, X-Force 1, 2, and 3, and 4 are on the stands. Uh, June, July, August, September, before the spot airs. So don't buy that um, complete uh, crap that, that, that somehow I rode the 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 commercial to some success i was already um breaking through and achieving these great uh record-breaking feats on my own youthful volition and my initiative and my hard work and my talent okay the commercial was a great additive to all of it but the scripture is kind of enjoying like uh you can tell like kind of he, he his words you you come off terribly in this so they FedEx it to me two days later. I get it. Marat and I put it in the VCR and I can't stop smiling because I was there. I know what he's working with. I see that he felt like whatever we, everything we filmed of Rob is such a disaster. We're just going with the interviews, the Spike Man portion. And then at the end, what a perfect end, the B-roll. You mean, do I look down, open it and then button it? Like I immediately saw it and my commercial instincts were like, this is cute, this is funny, and this is going to play. So my wife and her sisters are actresses. They had been in multiple Disney movies, and I cannot even tell you how many commercials. Double Mint, um, you know, fried chicken, whatever. Uh, right now, my, my, my sister-in-law is still in insurance ads and car ads that you still see to this day. But my, my, They taught me about cycles. And commercials, generally, if they're successful, they play two cycles. A cycle is every, like, eight weeks, and you get paid every eight weeks. And uh, long story short, that Levi's 501 ad broke out from the pack. I don't know what the other six spots were. It was me and the fish throwers 
and I actually played longer than the fish throwers. And yes, of course I'm proud of this, but I kept getting checks for new cycles. They would pay you. That commercial probably paid me a quarter of a million dollars, which is amazing because it ran, did I say five, six cycles. It ran a year and a half. It started in the fall of 1991. It was still playing in the winter of 92, okay? It really lived on your TV forever after it aired. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, the first time it ever, I ever saw it with in real life, I was with all my college-age friends. All my friends my age were in college. We'd get together on the weekends. We were watching football games on a Sunday, and suddenly I'm like, what's going on? There I am. In between the Dallas Cowboys game comes the Levi's ad, and it played all the time not just on MTV, on major networks, on Beverly Hills 90210, wherever they, whatever demographic that they targeted that for. And it was excellent and it was fun. And to this day, I think Spike Lee is a genius. He took all my uncomfortability, wrapped it up into a very funny, cute, even the music. Oh my gosh. I just think he cut together a great spot. It ends funny. The artwork's fun. It's great. Deadpool's there. Cable's there. Domino's there. They're all there. Um, so you created X-Force? Awesome. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that spot. So here's the deal. Deadpool 2 gets made after Deadpool 1, right? This, this is the perfect end of the story. And in January of 2019, I get to go to the Critics um, the, the Critics Association Award, the, the, the Hollywood Critics Award, whatever. It's televised. It's on like TNT or whatever. And because Deadpool 2 was nominated for three awards for action film, best actor, and original screenplay, okay? Uh, in, in these Critics' Choice Awards. And you guys, I've never been, like, I've been to the Golden Globes, and I've been to all these Academy Awards functions, but everybody has their table. There's the Deadpool 2 table. Um, there, there's the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying, it wasn't Ford versus Fry. What was Christian Bale that, that year? Um, that, but but, but um, the, the entire cast of of uh of the the black Klansman that spike lee had done um with um uh john david washington and with adam driver th th they had their own table okay uh i mean it was it was just t tv and and uh you know um um amazon fx all the tv the streaming everybody was there the movies i'm blanking on but everybody's there um oh bohemian rhapsody you know, because that's the year that, that they he won everything. Rami Malek won everything. But in between the meal and on the commercials, I made a beeline over to Spike Lee, who I had seen not too far from me at the Black Klansman table. And I walked over to him. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Mr. Lee. And he goes, yeah, what's up? Hey. And Adam Driver's kind of staring me down like, what are you doing? Are you, or, 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 you know, what do you want with my director? And I said, Mr. Lee, I, I don't know if you remember this, but, but um, you know, uh, uh, 20 years ago, you filmed me in the Spike Lee, uh, in the Levi's 501 um, commercials, and it was just so much fun. And I just couldn't not come over and tell you um, how much fun that was. He goes like, yeah, comic book guy, what's up? And uh, I said, hey, just congratulations, Black Klansman is brilliant. My, my, my wife and I, we loved it. We've seen it a couple times. I, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Good seeing you, man. Good seeing you. Take care of yourself. And I walked away and I was like, that's so cool. Like, like years later, under the big tent in Santa Monica, where they hold the Critics Awards, I would be able to interface with Mr. Spike Lee yet again and, and, and thank him. Um, I saw him one time right after that. He was coaching the Magic Johnson All-Star Game 
um, against Arsenio Hall, who was also a coach. And uh, I was a guest of Magic Johnson because I had done the cover to this All-Star game. Uh, I had drawn Magic Johnson. They, they made it the front cover. And so uh, Magic Johnson's agent said, hey, do you want to go say hi to Spike? So that's back in the summer of 92, and I was able to reconnect with Spike and thank him again. He's like, yeah, what's up, man? How you doing? You enjoy it? So, but again, Black Klansman, you know, how many years later? Was it 25? I don't know. But getting to see him at that award, thanking him for that commercial. So there you have your Levi's 501 commercial from beginning to end. I have no ass. I don't draw and speak the dialogue to my word balloons out loud. I couldn't pull it off then. It's not something I've ever done prior or since. But so we did She-Hulk. We did the Bronze Age. We did we did uh, we did DC Comics, Dan Jurgens, uh, and you got the Levi's 501 straight skinny you guys we are in the 90s okay we are deep deep in the 90s gene commercials a female hulk the mighty dan jurgens and the best superman there ever was bronze age eternals kevin flaggy we did it all today um thank you for hanging with me as always comic books is my thing i love them thank you for hanging out with me thanks for talking comics uh catch me on twitter at robert Liefeld, the full robert name again i got a blue check which differentiates me from the clowns who masquerade as me. Don't, they're not, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm Robert Liefeld, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld. Talk to me. Talk to me online, social media, Facebook, Twitter. I'm all over the place. Um, spread the word about Rob's observations. If you're having a good time and you want to share it with your friends who don't know about it, it's on all the different platforms. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple on iTunes, it's on Podbean, it's on every single episode is on my site. RobLifeldCreations.com has a podcast menu selection and that's where you'll find every single episode. Check that out. Enjoy yourself. We will talk again very soon. You're going to stay safe. You're going to stay out of trouble. You're going to take care of yourself and we will talk again very soon. Thanks again.